Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm KG Kumaladun. This week, we have been presenting a special series of speakers from the 2023 Camden Conference. The Camden Conference convenes annually to bring a variety of diplomats, professors, journalists, and political officials to address a topic of international political and humanitarian significance. For the 36th Camden Conference, the topic was Global Trade and Politics, Managing Turbulence. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. For our final discussion, today we bring you a two-part session. Starting off today is Jennifer Hillman. Introducing Jennifer today is host and senior editor of Marketplace Morning Report, David Brancaccio. Let us now welcome our first speaker this morning. I've been very excited to know that Jennifer was coming. Jennifer Hillman, a professor at Georgetown University Law School. She's had extensive experience in dispute resolution and representing US interests in trade negotiations. She has some stories. She recently completed her term as one of seven members of the World Trade Organization's appellate body. Before that, as a commissioner of the US International Trade Commission, she made decisions in more than 600 cases of alleged patent or trademark infringement. She's also directed a project at the Council on Foreign Relations studying the implications for the US of a question that came up the other day, right? China's vast Belt and Road Initiative. Dr. Hillman, we are so excited to have you. Welcome. Thank you very, very much. And I just want to start with two thanks. Uh, one to the many volunteers, some of whom I've gotten to know, who have worked so hard to put together this incredibly splendid conference. So thank you. And a, and a second thanks I want to give is to the students uh, who've been here, who've amazingly been here on Sunday morning, uh, and many of you tuning in around, uh, around to this conference. So a big congratulations to the students for being so engaged in these issues that I think are so important. So again, a thanks to the students. So I want to start with a basic question of how did we get to the place where we are right now, where so many are questioning multilateralism, just on its face? How many are questioning the rules-based international economic order that we've known? How many are questioning the World Trade Organization, the institution that's at the heart of our trading system? You know, it's been setting the rules of the road since 1947 in the GATT and certainly since 1995, and yet we're at a place now where the United States seems to be fairly willing to kick the WTO under the proverbial bus, or at least not to do very much to save it. Why? I mean, how? And what comes of that? And that's a lot of what I want to talk about. Um, I think for me, when I step back and look at it, why? I think there's five reasons. Um, and I'm going to start with the one where I think Mark Wu was talking about yesterday, which is the rise of China. Uh, there's no question that um, this was, as, as David Otter so carefully put it, you know, a shock to the system. Um, and at some level, it stems from the notion that the WTO has failed, has not been able to curb the kind of practices that China is engaging in, has not been able to police the unfairnesses that are perceived to come from China. And if the, you know, if the WTO can't do that, then what's it worth? 
is clearly one of the questions. The other issue for the WTO is this perception by many in the world of, wait a minute, what is this? The two largest trading countries in the world are having this basic trade war, the United States and China, in essence, engaging in a trade war outside of the WTO. Again, what's the point of having a World Trade Organization if all of the trade fights aren't going to take place and aren't going to be resolved within the WTO system? So I think that's one of the things that's contributing. The second is a lot of what was also talked about in this conference is this erasing of the line between economic security and national security. For years, all of us that worked in the trade realm, in the sort of economic realm, we stayed in our lane, and all of our friends over in the Defense Department and the military establishment, they stayed in their lane, and we all knew where the line was drawn. That's gone. Uh, again, we, we no longer have a system in which it's really clear uh, what is national security and what is economic security. For the Biden administration, though, this is becoming a little bit tricky. Because if, on the one hand, they are saying, we want to join with our allies and partners, we've revitalized NATO, we are going to work with everyone on national security issues, we're going to have an alliance on national security, and then you come over, and what are they doing on the economic side? America first. Buy American. Everything made in America. We're going to reshore. Uh, so that is sort of language, behavior, uh, issues that are very off-putting to many of our same allies that we're trying to be allied with on the national security side and a violation of the WTO rules. So again, a huge push on, on where we end up. Third for me, in terms of what's kind of undermining a little bit of our, our faith in the WTO, is what I'd call the rise of regionalism. And I put up here a, a recent book by one of my colleagues at the Council on Foreign Relations, Shannon O'Neill, has written that really focuses in on, it's not globalization that's been happening, it's regionalization. Um, and really looking at why many of the things that drove uh, this perception of globalization have really changed. I mean, if you think about it, an awful lot of that movement to go make things in China or other places, was driven by the desire to get cheap labor. Well, with automation, don't need as much labor. Uh, with automation, all, again, not as much of reason to go so far afield in order to get uh, your work done. You've also seen a real change in consumers wanting fast, tailored goods. They don't want, again, those goods that were mass produced in millions of the same thing being made in China. You've also seen a whole lot of countries recognize uh, that globalization uh, has a huge number of risks with vulnerable supply chains, so better to come closer to home. Uh, and what you've really seen is the rise of three regions, Asia, the European, Europe, and North America, with a huge amount of all of the trade occurring within those regions. In Asia alone, 60% of the trade is intra-Asian trade. So when we start talking about let's deglobalize from, or I'm sorry, uh, pull out of China, decouple from China, that also means decoupling from all of the other Asian countries. If it's 60% of all the trade is intra-Asia, you can't just pull out of China without effectively pulling out of a significant degree of the rest of, of, the rest of Asia. So again, a lot of reasons why regional and regional trade and regional agreements are becoming more important than WTO or global. Fourth reason for me is um, a lot more willingness to question what is the point of the WTO? Have trade agreements been bad for America? 
And again, a real rejection of a lot of what Doug Irwin started us off with. Um, are the rules of sort of comparative advantage still holding? Is there a real raison d'etre of trade policy with an efficient division of labor? And again, a much greater willingness um, to blame, if you will, all things foreign for whatever the ills are. Schools aren't as good as they used to be. Roads are crumbling. Blame, blame foreign goods, so stop imports. Blame foreign people, so stop allowing immigrants. Blame foreign money, so let's screen out foreign investment. That rhetoric, again, has become much more common, much more, much more uh, possible. Um, and again, you, you see this in this notion of, wait a minute, trade has resulted in, again, this is our, our USTR, concentration of wealth, fragile supply chains, uh, the decimation of manufacturing communities. So much greater willingness to say, we reject the, the basic notions of, of why do we trade. The last one for me is, again, a, a, a really growing perception that the World Trade Organization, the WHO, is simply not fit for purpose. Um, that it's reached only two agreements since 1995, so it's not doing a good job of engaging in new trade agreements. The US has become completely fed up with its dispute settlement system. So people like me are not being appointed to the appellate body anymore. There are no members of the appellate body, which means fundamentally you can't bring a complaint and be assured that you're going to get a binding result. Because what countries do, they, get, they, they go to a panel, the panel says, you're in violation of your rules. And the, and the party on the other side says, OK, fine, I'll appeal it. Appeal it to no one, because there's no one sitting on the appellate body. And yet, under the rules of the WTO, you cannot ask to actually move on that. You cannot, in essence, get your winnings. You cannot insist on compliance with a decision while an appeal is pending. While an appeal is pending, you're supposed to do nothing but wait for the appeal to be decided. And with no members of the appellate body, that appeal will pend forever. So again, huge issues that the WTO is simply not fit for purpose. So what do we do about it? Um, and what I, I'm an eternal optimist. So what I am going to try to make the case for this morning is that what we need to do now is to embrace a new approach to trade policy. An approach that a, co a colleague of mine, Nicholas Lamp, who's written a fantastic book called Six Faces of Globalization, Who Wins, Who Loses, and Why It Matters, has dubbed multi-purpose trade policy. It's a concept I've been exploring uh, with my students at Georgetown Law School in a series we're calling Erasing the And, that tries to reimagine a trading system in which a lot of the issues that used to be considered completely ancillary, climate change, global health, labor, inclusion, inequality, and move those into the center of the trading system. What would that trading system look like? Uh, and that's kind of what I want to explore a little bit with you this morning. Um, I will say, for sure, this is not a new concept, that trade needs to somehow embrace these other issues. Uh, I mean, in, in the run-up to the conclusion of the Uruguay round that led to the WTO, um, and quite prominently at a number of trade ministerial meetings thereafter. This one happens to be from what was referred to as the battle in Seattle, um, a trade ministerial meeting in Seattle in which you know, there were just huge protests. Um, it was one of my many experiences of getting tear gassed. Um, oh, and again, a lot of the protests over the lack of environmental issues, such as protection of the sea turtles, uh, over you know, uh, concerns over deforestation, over labor issues with, you know, workers and unions joining, you know, the throngs lining the streets complaining 
um, about corporate greed, about the WTO, uh, et cetera. So we've had these protests. This is, 19, this is 1997, 1998. Um, so again, we've had this objection. So why now? Why now bring all of these issues into the trading system? And for me, I think what's different now is really the sense of urgency. Uh, the, the COVID pandemic brought a realization of how, how dangerous it is to become overly reliant um, on trading partners that you cannot trust to continue to trade with you um, when times get tough. I mean, when everybody starts to say, as minute the COVID panic hits, I'm closing my doors, I'm hoarding my stuff for me, I'm keeping my PPE, no, I won't trade with you anymore. Uh, we all realized how incredibly dangerous that was. You then think about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what it has done to food security around the world, with Ukraine being one of the largest suppliers of wheat and corn to much of the developing world, you start to see, wait a minute, the system cannot work like this um, if, if, again, when in times of crisis, um, things, things really go so far awry. So again, I think a real sense of urgency um, that we've got to move on to some of these other issues. Um, and again, there's a whole lot of them uh, of issues that now need to be brought into the trade tent. But for this morning, I'm gonna touch on three that I think are really important. One is climate change, one is labor, and one is gender. So let me just start with climate change. Uh, and this comes from at least my own conviction. We simply cannot move far enough and fast enough to fight climate change unless we marry trade tools to the fight. Um, and I've put up here a whole lot of ideas about what, how, how and what trade tools are we talking about that could be used in this, <clears throat> excuse me, in this climate change fight? Everything, tariffs on imported products, rules of origin could be used to reshape supply chains so that we uh, import products that have less carbon, quotas or bans on imports that are, that are really a direct threat to the climate, disciplines on subsidies. So there are a whole series of trade tools that we could really think about that could move the needle on climate change. I'm gonna start with the one that's the most likely, that is going to happen. Um, in October of this year, the European Union is gonna start imposing what is referred to as a carbon border adjustment mechanism, or CBAM. So the European Union has had for many years an emissions trading system where it asks all of its big, uh, its big producers of, of energy intensive, greenhouse gas intensive products to get cleaner. And if they cannot get cleaner, they have to buy an emissions trading certificate in order to continue to be able to produce and, and pump out all of these greenhouse gases. And now the European Union is saying, we're gonna apply those same charges, those same amounts of payments to all the imports that are coming in that are highly carbon intensive. Iron, steel, fertilizer, cement, other things are gonna now be subjected to this carbon border adjustment. And the whole idea is, if we put a tax on everybody else producing carbon intensive goods, it will create an incentive for them to become less carbon intensive uh, because you don't want to pay uh, this, this border adjustment coming into Europe. So again, it's one of, one of the tools, use tariffs um, on, on these products as a way to fight climate change. Another one uh, that is getting a lot more discussion is the idea of putting labels on goods. 
I mean, if you had a label on a bottle of Fiji water that showed you that because it has to be put into a really heavy plastic container and shipped all the way from Fiji, it has X amount of, of GHGs in it, as opposed to a local bottle of water in a, in a cardboard box that has 10 times less greenhouse gases in it, would that move the needle if every consumer really could understand how much greenhouse gases is your choice um, in, in terms of fighting climate change? So again, labeling is another one of, of the issues that, that we can talk about. Another issue that is clearly coming up in the trade realm is whether or not we can use the tools of the WTO. And here, the WTO is really good at thinking about international standards. How do we get everybody in the tent to think about something? And one of the things that everybody needs to start thinking about is just this basic issue of how do we measure? Can we agree on how to measure? We've known since, since the UNFCC, since climate change you know, came about, we've had standards that measure nationally in the United States under the IPCC. How much greenhouse gases do the United States produce last year, this year, et cetera? How much does every country do? We have standards for that. We also have standards at the individual corporate level. And increasingly now, our Securities and Exchange Commission requires corporations to report how much GHGs did they produce over the entire life of the company, over all of their products. That's great. But now I want to know how much greenhouse gases is in one ton of steel coming in. How much greenhouse gases is in one bottle of Fiji water? No standards to do that. Um, to the extent that we've looked at them, uh, one, one study I saw, uh, we looked under the European Union system, one ton of steel, it said there were 0.8 tons of greenhouse gases in that one ton of steel. Come over and look then under what California is doing. California has an emissions trading system. The California Air Resources Board uh, imposes this. Under the California Air Resources Board standards, this exact same ton of steel would, would register under their system at 3.3 tons of greenhouse gases. So a huge difference in just one ton of steel. So one of the things that is happening now at the WTO is to try to say, we need some standards, because otherwise we're going to all start fighting with each other. If you say the tax is X and I say it's Y, and what we're fighting over is how much GHGs and how do we measure them, again, we, we need to come to these international standards. The other tool that is clearly coming to the fore at the WTO is, what can we do to police the amount of fossil fuels? Again, WTO rules already have a category of prohibited subsidies. And if a subsidy falls into the prohibited category, the rule is clear. Members may not um, impose them or maintain them. You cannot do that if it's considered a prohibited subsidy. So again, a huge idea is let's move fossil fuel subsidies into the category of prohibited and start disciplining them, start phasing them out, start saying you cannot impose or maintain. $430 billion in subsidies for, for fossil fuels measured only by government outlays. This is one way to measure it. If you may, you may have seen numbers out there, uh, others, the International Monetary Fund looks at the, if you will, cost to the planet of fossil fuel subsidies. Number last year, $5.7 trillion cost to the planet from fossil fuel subsidies. Got to get serious about it. And one of the ways is maybe to look at trade tools. The trick in fossil fuel subsidies is going to be this one. You might get international agreement to say we should cut back on the production subsidies, the subsidies that go to the Exxons and the mobiles of the world for exploration, et cetera, a lot of tax breaks and other things. Maybe you would say the world should agree to that. But look at the big green box, 86% of the subsidies 
go to help people lower the cost of their heating oil, their gasoline, et cetera, consumption subsidies. Those are going to be politically much harder, uh, I think, to get some kind of agreement for, for what to do about them. All right, so moving on from, from, from climate change, you know, one of the other big areas where there is a sense that trade rules could make a difference in another area is in the space of labor and human rights. And we're already seeing it. Um, already in the United States now, we have passed the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act, which says that because of the amount of forced labor in, in, in the Xinjiang region, that red region up there um, in China, that goods that are coming out of Xinjiang and or made with forced labor are gonna be subject to bans in the United States. The European Union is getting ready to do the same thing. That's gonna hugely affect cotton, solar, other things that we heavily source coming out of that Xinjiang region. And again, in the trading system, it creates all of these difficulties, again, that the trading system has to deal with. How do you know the cotton that was in Xinjiang that then got spun in another place, that then got woven in another place, that then got knit into a shirt in another place? How do we trace it all the way back to Xinjiang if we're gonna make these labor bans effective? Um, the other issue on labor, I put this up there because this is one of these really complicated charts, but it's a new development. In the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, USMCA, USMACA, as someone described it, the NAFTA, the new NAFTA, there's something really unique in what is referred to as a rapid response mechanism that allows you to go into an individual facility and say, at this particular plant, the right for workers to organize, the right for workers to unionize and bargain is being denied. And therefore, if this has all been shown through this very complicated process, nonetheless, you can then say, okay, those, those products out of that particular facility may no longer be imported into the United States. Again, three cases or four cases already so far. So we are coming up with trade tools to address things like human rights and labor violations. The third one I'm gonna to touch on is gender. Um, where, again, we are seeing a huge push now to consider the impact um, that gender will have on, on, um, on women in particular and how essential it is to bring women into the conversation, to bring women into the table as negotiators, I will say, to bring women and women's issues um, to the fore. And, and the trouble is what we're seeing and a huge amount of data coming out of the World Bank and other places about what a difference it would make. What a difference it would make, $28 trillion, 26% increase in the GDP of the world if men and women were simply treated equally, if women weren't facing the kind of trade barriers they face at the border. Um, it's, and it's everything. Um, it, it's everything from how much more difficult it is for a woman to be able to engage in trading at the border. Um, it's the issue that you know, when women approach the border to try to trade their goods, the chances that they will be experiencing a bribe that is four to 10 times larger than the bribe that a man has to pay. That's what really happens. Many of women are, are less literate in a lot of the world. So they have to read complicated customs forms and fill them out, can't do that. So they, then they get subject to, to abuse. Um, it can even be physical abuse. So again, huge issues just for women at the border. Huge issues in all of the countries in which women do not have the right to own property, do not have the right to open a bank account, cannot engage in, cannot set up their own company without the signature of a man, a husband, a someone else. Huge issues there. Huge issues on tariffs. In the United States, women's underwear carries a higher tariff than men's underwear. Why? 
Many, many women's items of clothing throughout the world carry a higher tariff than men's, tariff, than men's clothing. Huge, you know, why? Why? We have huge tariffs in much of the world on women's sanitary products. No, no tariffs on condoms, high tariffs on women's sanitary. Why? So again, a huge effort to try at the WTO to, again, use a lot of these trade tools to get at some of these issues. So I'm going to close by just saying I am going to be the optimist, um, that I think if we can think about a trading system that can take on these kind of issues, climate change, biodiversity, sustainability, food security, supply chain resilience, and that this is doable. We have this WTO, and we have trade tools in it. Um, and so the issue is whether we're willing to try to commit ourselves to create the political will and the leadership to pivot the WTO and the, and the rules-based trading system to a system that is fit for the 21st century. So thank you very much. Next up, let's welcome a southerner in the sense of just south of the border there. It, uh, fellow, let's do it this way, fellow northern New Englander, John E. Sununu. You'll know him first as a congressman and a senator from New Hampshire. He's served at the center of power, banking, finance, science, tech, and innovation committees. I mean, that's where it all happens. He's now on boards that include Boston Scientific, Lloyd's, of London, cool building, right, over there, Lloyd's. Senator Sununu has had direct exposure to the world of politics from a very early age and has had an equally long interest in leveraging the private sector for public good. Let us welcome Senator Sununu. Thank you, Thank you very much, David. Thank you very much, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I appreciate the introduction. Uh, I am on the board of Lloyd's of London. Uh, early uh, yesterday morning, uh, they showed a maritime traffic video that was extraordinary. And the entire time I was sitting watching it, I was thinking, I need to somehow steal this and bring it to my friends at Lloyd's because they're insuring probably 80% of that traffic and make them feel great about themselves. So uh, good news for you. I am the last uh, speaker uh, of the conference. Uh, bad news for me, Doug Irwin did a presentation yesterday morning that covered the politics of trade in, uh, in great detail. Uh, good news for all of us, it was extraordinary. Uh, he did a fantastic job, and I'll simply try to build on that. He did, I don't want to say he cheated, but he used a very old academic trick of using Muppets in his presentation. <laughs> So, you know, I, I, I was going to just take his whole presentation and, you know, try to do justice to it. I'll maybe steal one or two slides, but obviously use it as a jumping off point. Um, I'll provide or try to provide, you know, the viewpoint as a, a former member of Congress, former senator to some of these trade issues that uh, Congress has had to deal with in the past, will deal with in the future. and. I mean, the issues that Professor Hillman just laid out are extraordinary, but at the same time, they ultimately you know, have to be voted on. 
right, by Democrats, Republicans, partisans in Congress, 435 members. I used to say it was like a, you know, this colossal kindergarten class, you know, trying to organize and, and work with different coalitions. It's a huge challenge. Uh, but I do think there have been some, some key transition points in the politics of trade um, that I want to highlight. I'll talk about the recent legislation that's been passed and likely to pass in Congress. And, and really, in short, I'll uh, tell a few stories and express a few opinions. And ultimately, that's really the best productive use of a former uh, politician, right? So. <laughs> so in the Senate, the majority party provides the presiding officer every day, the person sitting in the chair. Uh, and typically, that responsibility falls on to the new members, the freshman senators, because the members who have been there for 10 or 15 years, they don't want to spend two hours sitting in the chair with the gavel, you know, calling on people. So uh, one day, I'm uh, sitting in the chair, and down to the floor comes Senator Fritz Hollings, late great senator from South Carolina. And Fritz steps to the podium. Uh, and well, at his desk, we all had mics at our desk, and he starts to speak about the budget deficit. President George Bush, $400 billion deficit. He doesn't want to talk about the economy. His advisor, Mr. Karl Rove, doesn't want to talk about the deficit. All he wants to talk about is free trade, free trade. $400 billion deficit, they hurt in the economy. And then he turns to me. Well, the presiding officer, the, the senator from New Hampshire, he knows what I'm talking about. He's been on the budget committee. He understands these things. So there were two outcomes to this sort of tense moment for me, because this is three months into my term, I think. One, I'm thinking, if my family is watching this at home, you know, they're thinking, why doesn't John answer him? Why doesn't he say something? Why doesn't he respond? But if you're the presiding officer, you just preside. You know, you don't debate, you just preside. But the, the second thing that his, his admonition, a, a, a cry of free trade, free trade, uh, brought to, uh, to my mind uh, was ultimately this senator, Henry Clay. Henry Clay was the, uh, the greatest proponent, not the inventor, but the greatest proponent of the American system. Came to Congress, I think, in 1816. Probably, that's close enough, probably wrong, but close enough. And the American system consisted of three pillars, Bank of the United States, investment in infrastructure, which at the time meant mostly canals and, and, uh, and bridges and, and turnpikes, and the tariff the tariff. And this quote is from his arguably most important speech on the American system given in 1832. And he called free trade, free trade. The call for free trade is unavailing as the cry of a spoiled child in its nurse's arms for the moon or the stars that glitter in the firmament of the heaven. Who talks like this? <laughs> no senator I ever met. But it has never existed and it never will exist. So uh, Clay was you know, one of the great proponents of the tariff. Professor Irwin showed this chart yesterday. And, and to me, I'm an engineer by training, so I, I love a, a good chart. 
But you can see starting at you know, 1820, right around the time that, that Clay came uh, uh, to Congress, uh, the House first and then the Senate, the tariff was the dominant topic, economic talk, topic in the Senate. And it really you know, defined the makeup. Right? It was northern. It was driven. It was urban. Uh, it was manufacturing focused, and it was wigs. Clay was a wig. Uh, I, I visited a, a club in, in London that still celebrates wiggery. You know, it's, it's the center of wiggery in England, and I'm not even sure what that means, but there's obviously a connection between the parties. But the, the Whigs supported the tariff, obviously. Those who opposed the tariff, who supported free trade, they were rural, they were Democrat, they were Southern, and they were agrarian. And these debates dominated Congress. D this was the central uh, debate in trade, not for a decade, not for two decades, but for 130 years. I mean, quite literally until uh, 1946, uh, with the end of the, uh, the Second World War. I mean, they obviously made arguments about protecting key American industries, not unlike the same kinds of arguments uh, that were made in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even as we lowered tariffs, and then with the more current debates that we'll discuss. But for 140 years, and, and you can see, one of the things that fascinates me about this chart is, uh, you see the tariff of abominations is 1828. This led South Carolina to forward the proposition of nullification that if a law was passed that they thought was unconstitutional, they could nullify it. And that tension, controversy, resulted in a compromise to lower tariffs gradually over time. And you can see that you know, from 1830 to, to 1850, 1855. That was uh, the, the great compromise that was reached in the Senate. And then if you think that the, the alignments didn't hold, I love this divot here. Underwood, 1913, Democrats managed to wrest control of Congress in 1912 with the election of Woodrow Wilson, and what did they do? They lowered tariffs. So the same alignments that existed in 1830, 1840, 1850 still existed in 1912. <clears throat> so it, the world followed. I mean, if, if you look at what I England and France were doing, certainly in the earlier part of the, the 19th century, the later part, obviously, Smoot-Hawley is the sort of the aberration uh, in, in the center of that chart. Um, and then we get to the gap period, 1946. What's not to like? If you're, sit you're a member of Congress, you're sitting in the House, you're sitting in the Senate, the United States has essentially uh, provided the arms, the equipment, the manufacturing, the know-how to achieve victory in the Second World War. We're dominant from a manufacturing standpoint. standpoint. There is no number two in 1946. We have agriculture, we have manufacturing, we have technology. Why wouldn't you support an effort to export these things around the world? Why wouldn't you support an effort to lower trade barriers, to cut tariffs, to improve access for American goods around the world? So that's the bipartisan consensus that starts in 1946. 
that uh, supports uh, the GATT process. Um, the uh, trade agreements at that time found general, you know, a bipartisanship. If you, if you uh, were from a manufacturing uh, part of the country, you wanted goods to be exported around the world. If you were from an uh, agricultural area, you wanted your goods to be exported around the world. There was little or no competition. In 1979, I think we, we had an important transition point. I, I, I would say the end of the GATT period, you know, uh, uh, Professor Hillman talked about the, the death of WTO or, or maybe uh, uh, trying to revive WTO. But for me, the end of the, the GATT process was 1986, the, the beginning of the Uruguay round, um, which ended with the uh, agreement and the creation of WTO. But we entered a different era in the early 80s, and I would call it the age of the free trade agreement. And it was really Ronald Reagan in his campaign in 1979 that laid out the idea of a free trade agreement between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And I really feel that that leadership, coming from where it did, you know, helped breathe new life into the idea of these multilateral trade agreements, life that you know, might not have been there um, had we not had that kind of leadership, making broad macroeconomic arguments. One, for Im Im improving uh, growth, for getting access to less expensive goods from around the world, but there was also obviously a security element to it, building economic ties, um, building security ties with countries around the world to help provide a bulwark against uh, Soviet aggression. So, FTAs, you know, there was Caribbean Basin Initiative, NAFTA. Uh, during my time in the, the Senate, we passed the African Growth and Opportunity Act. There were free trade agreements with Colombia and Korea and, and Panama. You know, all of these focused primarily on tariffs and access. But certainly with NAFTA, and extending through uh, a number of the other agreements, um, came the, the side agreement, right? Uh, NAFTA most prominently, side agreements on labor and the environment. Uh, we can discuss the politics, whether they were effective or ineffective, whether they had good enforcement mechanisms or not, whether they were just window dressing. But it was still the first time you had what we might call domestic policy issues, domestic policy goals attached to a, a broader uh, piece of, of trade legislation. Um, So labor, environment, human rights. Um, the turning point comes with TPP. It's negotiated and championed by a Democratic president. Yet it was opposed by pres uh, presidential candidates of both parties. Now, previously, with the, uh, the various free trade agreements, 
NAFTA passed with bipartisan support. It was signed by a Democratic president. Uh, these others received broad bipartisan support. Some pockets of opposition for specific mercantilist interests, textiles, uh, would be a good, good example with the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. With the TPP, I, I think we saw a dramatic change in the politics. This was an opportunity, in effect, to restore and strengthen the bipartisan commitment to trade deals, because it was negotiated by a Democratic president. Whether for lack of communication at the time, lack of commitment by the president, lack of champions in the House or the Senate, it was left to linger and really left to the devices of the, the presidential election. Donald Trump came out against it. I guess we shouldn't be too surprised. Hillary Clinton came out against it. Bernie Sanders came out against it. And when you have that kind of opposition during a presidential campaign, you're going to find very few members, House members or senators, who are running for re-election that are going to stand in opposition to their party's nominee. The TPP is not dead. TPP is sleeping. Um, but the challenges of, re of reviving it are going to be enormous, enormous. Trump really used the failure of the TPP as a springboard to begin the process of renegotiating NAFTA. And by that time, given the sentiment of in both parties, in the House and in the Senate, there was really nothing legislatively, nothing politically, that stood in President Trump's way. The, you know, we recall the, the discussion in the, say, in the press, in the media, academics, many people in this room probably you know, wrote and opined very thoughtfully about the risks and the issues associated with any attempt to scrap and renegotiate NAFTA. The, the, the relative successes, success of the renegotiation has been discussed. Uh, very, very modest changes, uh, hailed as the greatest agreement of all time by, by the president. But it was that failure of TPP that dramatically changed sentiment for trade in the United States Congress. So where are we today? Uh, the bipartisanship of GATT is certainly gone. A presidential leadership that uh, is focused on driving bilateral or regional trade agreements uh, like the FTAs, that's gone. On the Republican side, the Republicans who were excited and anxious to carry the mantle of the benefits of free trade from an economic perspective uh, are largely gone. I mean, when I came to the Senate, when I came to, the, uh, to Congress, we had members like uh, Jim Colby, David Dreyer, um, Lee Hamilton, who were very internationally focused, very supportive of the idea of a multilateral agreement to lower tariffs to improve access. And those types 
of representatives are, are largely gone. The Trump tariffs have become the Biden tariffs. So again, if you go to the House or the Senate today, try to find a member that publicly and strongly opposes the current tariff regime on China. It'd be very hard to do. And we've entered a new age of unilateralism. You can call it um, industrial policy. You can call it unilateralism. Uh, you can call it just straight subsidies. But Congress has begun to pass legislation where th that affect, certainly affects trade, but where trade really is not the goal or the objective of the legislation. This is domestic policy legislation where trade is now used as a tool, as a vehicle, as a hammer to further the domestic needs. And, and that's essentially what I'm trying to get at with the tail wagging the dog. The idea of a piece of trade legislation in and of itself, it's not a thing of the past, but it is not central to the priority list of any member of Congress right now. And we can start by looking at the CHIPS Act. And there's a lot more to it than, than just a, a few bullet points on a slide. But the key parts for uh, fabrication, $30 billion in subsidy uh, for uh, SME, uh, uh, semiconductor manufacturing equipment uh, facilities. There's $12 billion in NAST grants for advanced manufacturing centers, whatever that might be. Uh, NIST has never given out grants like this, and we have no advanced manufacturing centers, so this will be an adventure. Uh, $24 billion in investment tax credits. Those who voted for this piece of legislation did not look at it as a piece of trade legislation. Now, they may have thought that this is important to national security. Uh, this is an important counter to China, perhaps. Although the bulk of the most sophisticated chips in the world don't come from China. They, they come from other places. But what precedent does this set? Right? Other countries, not just China. How does Japan react to this? How does Korea react to this? How does Germany react to this? How do the Netherlands react to this? These are the countries that have strong, competitive semiconductor manufacturing industries that export to the United States, export around the world. Is this a chips bill, or is this the beginning of a, a chips trade war? I don't know, but, but we have to think about it in those terms. In October, sanctions against China. These are I mean, the strongest technology sanctions, I think, that we've ever uh, um, placed on China. On the equipment itself, on memory and logic chips, first time I think ever we've placed a restriction on memory chips. I mean, they're, they're actually commodities. A restriction on supply chain, a restriction on people. If you have a green card, if you're a US citizen, you can no longer work and support a company that's providing any of these things to China. The stated goal, freeze China in place. <clears throat> you know, there's something to be said for setting the bar low, right? Keep expectations low and then exceed them. This is going to be an incredibly tough one 
to achieve. And this, again, this is uh, the goal of the legislation. This is the goal of the National Security Council, the goal of the administration. Is this a piece of national, is this a national security uh, move or is this the beginning of a new trade war? Inflation Redu Reduction Act, EV tax credits, price. We're going to allow EV tax credits on $55,000 vehicles, $80,000 SUVs, final assembly, content rules for the percentage of the vehicle, or in this case, the vehicle has to be final assembled in the United States. Battery content, 50% of the battery content has to be sourced in the United States. Uh, they make an allowance for uh, countries in the uh, free trade agreement with the United States. Uh, but these are very, very specific to trading partners, content, where it's assembled. Is this, a, well, it's not an Inflation Reduction Act, I think we, we know that, but is, is this a piece of uh, domestic policy legislation? That's how those that voted for it view it. They viewed it as infrastructure, uh, in, environmental support, electric vehicle support, but if you're in Germany or France or Korea or Japan, you view this as, a, as an inappropriate, discriminatory subsidy against businesses and industries and manufacturers in your country. This is the beginning of a trade war. And, and I can say that with some confidence because what has the response been? the border adjustable carbon tax that Professor Hillman talked about. Um, I don't think it's going to be implemented in October. I think, I think it'll probably be delayed because the legislation required to achieve this is going to be so complex. One, it's gonna be nearly impossible to do, but two, it will inspire response, a trade response, from the United States Congress. What makes, it, what makes it so difficult to do? It was alluded to, but let me just give you one example. A ton of aluminum manufactured in Washington state using 100% hydroelectric electricity would be taxed the same way a ton of steel manufactured in Korea using coal-fired electricity. Now, the Europeans may say, well, we're going to make adjustments for that. But as was alluded to, a mechanism that calculates the precise amount of carbon that did or didn't go into every item in every container ship on every vessel that we watched in that original graphic around the, taking material around the world, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, not going to happen. So where does that leave us? Is there a path forward uh, on trade to get us back on track to multilateral agreements that are designed to improve access, reduce trade friction, lower tariffs, perhaps deal with some of these ancillary issues, but that are are focused on improving and strengthening those ties rather than making statements about what other countries' domestic policy should look like. Well, one, we need time. 
Right. The politics right now is not going to facilitate those kinds of debates. We, we just talked about the, the friction with China. And this is true, important, uh, a series of national security concerns and issues with China. The tension created by the, with the EU as a result of uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and, and their counterproposal for a, a carbon uh, border adjustable tax. Um, the fact that the Trump tariffs have become the Biden tariffs. This is just not a climate conducive to building political support, electoral support for free trade. So we need some time to, to sort of reduce the temperature in the room. We need leadership. Leadership matters. I started talking about Clay, but you know Henry, uh, 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 Truman in the um, in the GATT era, you know, being willing to step forward and provide U.S. leadership for that process. Ronald Reagan, NAFTA, Clinton uh, signing NAFTA and and being committed to continuing the process of developing free trade agreements. Good leadership matters, and bad leadership matters too. Uh, uh, the effect that the, the President Trump has had and, and now President Biden has had on this climate. So we need better leadership. I, I hesitate to think about it or to say it, um, but you know, the answer to restoring America's commitment to uh, economic principles of open trade may be electing a president from the South. <laughs> and finally, you, know, you need a vehicle. And I don't know what that is. Right? But this can't be done in the abstract. Um, you know, it could be something small, uh, a, a, a new modest agreement, maybe with South Asia, with North Africa, South American countries, or it could be something a little bigger, like waking up the TPP. Thank you very much. listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. This week, we featured talks from the 2023 Camden Conference, Global Trade and Politics, Managing Turbulence. Today was a two-part session featuring Jennifer Hillman and John Sununu. The extended version of this discussion is available at camdenconference.org, as well as all of the 2023 Camden Conference talks and panel discussions. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. This concludes our Speaking in Maine series of the Camden Conference. If you missed part of this program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimaladun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.